Um, hi, my name is Ian, as Robin's already said. I'm one of the ministry associates here. And tonight we're looking at Matthew chapter 26. If you want to turn to that, it's on page 832. And as you're flicking there, I'll tell you how we kind of have got to there. What we're doing is we're starting a four-week series on the Passion Narrative. The last three chapters of Matthew's Gospel leading up to Easter. We've been going through Matthew in our Sunday evening services. Uh, with last week, Andy finishing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. And between chapter 7 and to where we are tonight in chapter 26, there's this, been this tension rising between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, with the Jewish leaders coming to the conclusion that they wanted Jesus dead. But tonight we're going to see that Jesus, who was the king of the people, came to do what only he could do, to fulfill his purpose and do only what he could do. The view of the Messiah was this conquering revolutionary king and it was about to be shattered as we see him become the suffering servant king. So let's read Matthew 26, verse 26 to 46. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me tonight. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. 
Now, these are very familiar verses for us tonight, but I don't want you to drift away. I know it's been a hot day outside as well, but just stay focused because this has a big meaning for both Christian and non-Christian. Because if you're here as a Christian today, this should make us realize just what Jesus has done for us. That we need to have a greater understanding of the effect of sin that it has on God and the lengths that he went to for us. And living then like it really matters to us. That of no doing of our own, Jesus went to the cross. That though we have disobeyed and continue to disobey, he still sent Jesus to the cross for us. And if you're not a Christian, you've got a decision to make because this man, Jesus, did die. He took death on a cross and he did it for you just as much as he did it for the followers in the reading tonight. He did it because of a love for you and for you to have a chance at the forgiveness of sin. So why do we get into the passage just now? It's a very familiar passage and it's kind of one that we think is three different stories, but I think they're connected and they're based around two symbolic cups. The first is the cup of forgiveness and the second is the cup of God's wrath. You'll see it on the sheet before you. It kind of splits up into the cup of forgiveness, the cup of God's wrath, and the drinkers of these cup, which is the hopeless disciples and obedient Jesus. So let's look at verses 26 to 29 first. What we have is the disciples and Jesus. They were coming to sit down for the Passover meal. These guys were pretty Jewish guys, so they would do this every year of their lives. And then at some point, Jesus just starts to shake things up a bit. The bread and wine were normal things to consume at Passover meal. But what Jesus says is not the norm. In a dinner where they would be drinking and eating in remembrance of what God had done in Egypt, in the Exodus story, Jesus turns it around on himself. And what he says, he says in verse 26 at the end of it, he says, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. This is massive. We come so normalized to it sometimes, but this was huge. Jesus takes the age-old remembrance of thousands of years and then says it's about him. He takes a tradition that these guys would have followed their entire lives and the nation as a whole would have, covered, would, have, would have followed the entirety almost of the nation's life. And he turns it on himself and on his death. So the Exodus throwback isn't actually just by chance. It's not just an act. Uh, it's a very deliberate act. And if you've grown up in church, even if you've not been to church, thanks to Christian Bale in Hollywood, you will know the Exodus story. The story of the Exodus is how God's people, Israel, were in Egypt in slavery under the control of Pharaoh. And Exodus is how God took them out from under the hand of Pharaoh and into the promised land. And the Passover meal was a memorial of when God rescued his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. So we've got to ask, what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing with this Exodus remembrance meal. What he's doing is he's fulfilling it. He is saying he is going to bring about a new rescue, a bigger rescue, this new, bigger exodus. 
And Jesus' death was going to bring about that great rescue. The rescue is all centered in one thing in verse 28. This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup of forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is telling them that this, his death was going to bring about this great rescue from sin. So what is sin? Why is this forgiveness of sin such a big deal? Why is it even necessary? We often sit and we think that evil people out there, they're the people that sin. Maybe we think of sin as the people who are in prison. They are sinners. It's quite an old word. It's quite a Bible-y word. The people who sin are those who are looking out only for themselves, that they're just not nice people. They are sinners, but we, we're actually okay. We say it, we're sinners, but in our head we think we're actually okay. But sin is much more than that. It's much more than murder or stealing or hurting people. It is much deeper than that. Sin is not just bad things. Sin is where we go against the way God has told us to live. And it's not this big mean God with a magnifying glass who just wants to ruin all our fun with kind of rules and regulations and things we have to keep. It's the God who designed, created, and loves you and knows the best way for you to live. Sin is when we divert from that path. When we say to the creator and designer of everything, I'm doing it my way. I know better than you, God, in this one. It's actually not that bad, God. I can carry on the way I'm living, regardless of what you say. Sin is a disregard for God and his ways. Sin is putting our needs ahead of God's. Sin is every time that I have disregarded my heavenly Father. When he has given abundantly, even the breath in our lungs, and we just turn our backs on him, we say, no thanks. Imagine if you're just at a party and there's this dad who gives his kid all these presents. He just buys hundreds of pounds worth of presents, everything the boy's asked for, everything he's waiting for, and things he didn't even know he wanted. He wraps it up neatly and puts a bow on it. Well, the wife would probably wrap it up neatly and put the bow on it, but that's okay. And he hands over the presents to the kid, to the boy, and there's not even a thank you. In fact, the kid goes out and keys the dad's car. He goes into his garden and kicks up all the flowers. He gets crayon and writes all over the wall. That's what it is when we sin. We spit in God's face. And it's more than that. It's so insidious that we don't even know it fully when we sin. It's not always a question of, will I sin or won't I sin? It's not always a question of, will I look at this attractive girl, will I not? Will I get jealous of that person's success or that person's things? It happens so instinctively that it's not until we've done it that we notice it sometimes, even if we do notice it. Our sin is so prevalent that it's a natural reaction of our hearts and minds as opposed to a well-thought-out unfaithfulness to God. And this sin is a problem. And the problem is, is that there is a penalty for the sin. Because sin's penalty, even just one, is eternity without God. Sin's punishment is not just a sin bin until we think about what we've done for a while. It's not four to eight years in some spiritual 
prison cell. It's eternity without God. And it sounds bleak, it sounds gloomy, it sounds rough. If you've just come off the street and this is your first service, you are thinking, what on earth am I doing in church? But this is what he's saving us from. From that eternity without God. This is what he is forgiving us of. Jesus and what he says to his followers is comparing the physical slavery they're in, the Israelites, in Egypt, to the spiritual slavery that we are in now. The disciples are in, that we are in, their spiritual slavery to sin. And he's rescuing us from it. Our biggest problem and our only real problem, he's rescuing us from. Sin just has this grip on us. It's like when a ship runs aground and it just discharges all this oil all over the sea, all over the beach. And there's this helpless seagull just flapping along, covered in this sticky, viscous oil spill. The bird's barely visible except for this beak just poking out. And it's absolutely helpless until the environmental worker comes and just cleans it up. That's what we are like in our sin. We're covered from head to toe. Covered and just restricted by it. And that's what sin is. It just overcomes, it seeps into, and it's at the heart of everything that we are. We have this dark black stain all over the canvas of our soul. And that's what we are being freed from. Through the pouring out of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Our past, present, and future sins. Freed and liberated completely. Through the death that Jesus died on the cross, forgiveness is offered to all. It's fitting that we have communion tonight, as we've seen Jesus ordaining the Lord's Supper, which is the communion. In much the same vein as the Jews remember God's saving of them in Egypt, we remember what Jesus did for us dying on the cross. That is the point of it. For the forgiveness of sins, what he went through for that and the price that was paid. And we're going to see now what that is. So we've looked at one cup, we'll put that away, we'll put it on some metaphorical shelf. And this is the cup of forgiveness we've looked at. The question is, how is this possible? How can we drink of this cup of forgiveness? How is it possible for these followers of Jesus to drink of it? So we'll leave the upper room and we'll turn to the garden in verses 36 to 46. We'll leave the warm friendship in the room to a cool garden where Jesus is all alone. The whole scene of Gethsemane Gethsemane is just of torment. But why? Why is Jesus struggling so much in the garden? We see it in his prayers to his father. He keeps referencing this cup. The agony that he's going to have to go through with this cup. And we see his plea for any other way than this cup. So let's look at his prayers. Verses, verse 39 is his first one. And he says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in his second prayer is in verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in 44 is his third one. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. That Jesus was looking ahead to this cup that he had to drink. 
But why was it such a struggle for him? Why was he really struggling with his cup? The text doesn't explicitly say the contents of the cup. It doesn't tell us what it is, but it terrifies him. You can just tell from the passage. So what is in it? If you were Jewish, you would absolutely know what was in this cup. You would know what he's referencing and why it was such a difficult thing. You would think back to the Old Testament. Specifically, you'd think back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 25, 15. I'll read it because it'll take just as long for you to find it. Because Jeremiah is not easy. I found it here. Jeremiah 25, 15. He says, Thus says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. What Jeremiah is doing is he's picturing this cup as the wrath of God. God's wrath was being poured into this cup. That the anger that God has to this sin problem is pictured in this cup. And this cup is the cup that Jesus is talking of in the garden and the one that he has to drink. The wrath of God. And this is the key point of the whole message. The forgiveness of sins is only possible because Jesus takes God's wrath. It's pure and simple. God can't just wipe the slate clean. Because God is just and the problem of sin must be dealt with. So there needs to be a punishment for sin. So for us to be forgiven entirely of our sin. The wrath of God had to be diverted elsewhere. And so it was diverted to Christ. It's sobering these words that every punishment that we deserve, Jesus took. The garden's a picture of Jesus' anguish as he goes to the cross. The agonies of being betrayed, of being beaten, of being mocked. But the real agony, what is really haunting Jesus is the wrath of God. It's more than the lashings and the ridicule. This is the Jesus who stilled the storms. This is the Jesus who healed lepers. The, one, the man who brought someone back from the dead. And this powerful man was absolutely broken in the garden. It is the thought of the wrath of God that is causing him to say what he says in verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That his soul was sorrowful. Do we have any idea what Jesus has gone through for us as a Christian? What Jesus took for us? The agony doesn't come from the thought of dying a horrible death on the cross. As horrible as that thought is, it comes from the sin that is going to be laid upon him and the wrath God will pour out on that sin and on him. There's a great quote from a sermon by a man named Jonathan Edwards, the theologian. And he's talking about Gethsemane, he's talking about Jesus, and this is what he says. The agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it were, set the cup down before him. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. 
He stood and viewed its, viewed its raging flames and the glowing of its heat. But in Gethsemane, Jesus was standing, looking into the burning furnace of God's wrath. The blast of the fieriness was just bearing down on his soul. The mere heat of the open door as he stood on the edge, overcoming him. It's so unbearable, he can barely even look at it. But more remarkable than all this, than even just the thought of the wrath of God, is that Jesus goes through with it. Because we know that Jesus, the spotless, sinless epitome of perfection, completely undeserving of God's wrath, took it. He took it on the cross. He looked into the red-hot furnace of God's wrath and just marched in. The reaction Jesus has to the thought of sin being laid on, the thought just shows how serious sin actually is. And it shows our complete, utter lack of understanding of it. That sin is a big deal. Do we really grasp that? That God would sacrifice his own son. That the punishment that Jesus took was for the penalty for my sin. Jesus looked to God in his prayers for any other way. That if it was possible, he could take any different ending. But Jesus knew that this was the only way to reconcile the world. To deal with the problem of sin. And this takes me to my final or third point. The hopeless disciples in Jesus. Jesus is total obedience and the disciples who just didn't really have a clue what was going on. So let's look at verses 30 to, 30 to 35. We're jumping back up again. We'll look at his followers, the disciples, the people that the forgiveness of sins was offered to. We'll see just how deserving they are of forgiveness of sins. The disciples were 12 of Jesus' closest followers. They were 12 of his closest friends. They were the 12 who'd stuck by him in every step of the ministry from the beginning. Every single sandy ministerial step, they were there. These were the guys who were handing out bread to the 5,000. These were the guys who were doing healings in his name. If anyone was deserving of it, it would be these 12. But Jesus tells them in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike this shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus tells them they're going to scatter. That after sharing one of the most biblically groundbreaking moments with Jesus in the ordination of the Lord's Supper, that they're going to run away. I would be offended if that was me. You never want to be seen as a coward or someone who's going to let someone else down. Never mind the person you think is the king of Israel, the promised Messiah. And to be fair to them, they stick up for themselves. Peter's having absolutely none of it. Plucky Peter pipes up with a sting to his pride. He actually throws the rest of them under the bus when he says it in verse 31. Nope, verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. These guys, these guys might fall away. But Jesus, I'm here till the end. 
Don't worry about it. You can count on me. In fact, verse 35, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same. The disciples were adamant that they would not betray Jesus. That they were going to stick by him. Peter even says he's willing to die for Jesus. However, not even a chapter later, Peter denied Jesus after questioning from a little girl. Peter said he would stick by him until death and not deny Jesus, but flopped under the interrogation of a little girl. Where Peter had the talk, he had the razzmatazz. Jesus actually had the walk because Jesus did die for Peter. Peter's words were empty and Jesus emptied himself. Where Peter's words were sticking together and of solidarity, Jesus was left all alone. And it's not just Peter that scatters. They all do. If you look down, scan down to verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. When a, people, a, a mob came to, for them, they all ran away. The followers who at dusk were feasting and waving this big banner of King Jesus, the best guy ever, their friend, by dawn had all done a runner. And they'd left Jesus all alone at the hands of his foes. His foes. So I don't know how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I only just read it this year to my shame. But it is a fantastic book. It has short chapters and plenty of pictures. And it is a dream to read. But what it is really good at doing is picturing these chapters in Matthew. Capturing the heaviness and the loneliness of it all. And the sacrifice that had to be paid. What happens is, if you've not seen it, is that Edmund, one of the children who stumbled across Narnia, is sentenced to death for high treason by the White Witch. And then after a discussion between the White Witch and Aslan, Edmund is freed. He's free to go. And what you read is that that night, Aslan just slinks off into the forest all alone. What we find out is the deal that Aslan has made with the White Witch is that he has sacrificed his own life for that of Edmund's. That he has made a deal to go quietly to the stone table to be killed in place of Edmund. Aslan walks alone, walking towards an unjust death for someone else. For the sake of the guilty. Edmund was guilty. And as you're reading, you just think, this seems so unfair. Edmund has no clue what is unfolding as he lies asleep in his tent, probably dreaming of Turkish delights, while Aslan traipses up the hill to the stone table to be killed. So that's what it's like when you read Matthew 26. The disciples, they lie asleep, completely unaware of what is going on. It's hilarious when you think of it that they just don't have a clue. Well, Jesus is in torment over the punishment he has to take for them over going to the cross. They don't even know it because they're not even awake to see it. It just seems absurd that the disciples are truly hopeless. They're useless. But what is amazing about all this is not the disciples' disbelief or the disciples' lack of understanding or their lack of faith, but more that Jesus, knowing this, offered them forgiveness of sins. He knew they were going to betray him and he still offered them forgiveness 
of sins. That their salvation is not dependent on how close they stand, on how close we stand, how good we are. Our salvation is not how we fare in difficult times. It's not dependent on how I stand up to struggles and trials and opposition. Thank goodness, the beauty of it is it's given because of the obedience of Jesus and not us. It isn't on our obedience, but on Jesus' obedience that we stand. He knows we will not be as strong on a Monday or a Tuesday morning as we are when we stand in church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. That we will mess up. He knows that while we sit in small groups and sing God's praises, that we say we'll die for you, Jesus. But that we might be undone by the questioning of a friend in the office or at home. Or even just tempted by the world in general. And he expects it. And so he died for us. Because I couldn't die for myself. So what does this mean when we mess up? We turn back to the cross. We turn back to the cross at every moment. Because Jesus knew we would mess up. Christ did what I couldn't do. And move on to my last point, which is Jesus' obedience. He prays in all of his prayers for a way out. But, he says it in all of them, not my will, but yours. He took it out of complete obedience to his Father. The reason that his followers are able to have forgiveness of sins is not because of their own strength and obedience to God, but because of Jesus. The reason we can have forgiveness of sins is not her strength or obedience, but because of the agony that Jesus went through in Gethsemane and then on the cross. Jesus was completely obedient and took death on a cross and his followers weren't even awake to see it. Well, they were awake for the cross. They weren't awake for the garden. They weren't awake in the garden. The disciples had no idea of the torment that Jesus went through. The forgiveness of sins is simply and purely because of Jesus' complete obedience. Our sins, past, present, and future, are dealt with because of Jesus' obedience. We can freely stand before God forgiven because of Jesus. The cross is this amazing thing that it shows me all of my shortcomings. It shows me just how far I have fallen but it shows me where all of my strength lies. That my strength is not on what I have done or what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' torment and obedience in taking the cup of God's complete wrath is why we can have the cup of forgiveness. What a joy that our forgiveness is not on our merit, Our sins are forgiven absolutely and completely because of what Jesus did. Because of his obedience. Because he took the awful, awful punishment for sins. Obediently and alone. What I deserve is that sentence. What every single one of us deserves is God's complete wrath. But God. But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made a way for us to avoid that. 
God, through Jesus, is doing everything possible for us to avoid that tragedy. He takes the painful pill that we can't swallow. A self-inflicting misery of Jesus on the cross, just so you can avoid eternity without God. Now that is love. So I'll ask the question that I started with, with what does this mean for us, for me as a Christian, or for you as a non-Christian? It means that we realize what Jesus did for us. We need to get a bigger understanding of how much sin affects God and the lengths that he went to for us to avoid that. And then living like it really affects us deeply every day. That I have a deep gratitude for the price paid for my soul. That I have no doing of our own. And though we have, do, and will disobey God, he still sent Jesus to the cross. In everyday life, it means that I'm not dependent on my own works, but entirely on Jesus. Which means when we fail like the disciples, they come back to the cross. When we fail in the workplace, we come back to the cross and ask for forgiveness. And then that we are no more worthy than any of our friends or work colleagues or family. So why wouldn't we want to tell them what Jesus has taken for them as well? Why wouldn't we want them to know of the good news, the free, liberating news of the gospel where Jesus died for their sins because of his love? The one way to be released from the bondage of guilt of our sin. And if you're not a Christian, again, you've got a decision to make. Because this man, Jesus, did die. He took death on a cross. And he did it for you just as much as he did it for the followers here in this reading. He did it because of a love for you and a chance for you to drink of the cup of forgiveness. So you have the choice to have forgiveness of sins or God's wrath. A cup that Jesus has taken so that you don't have to. But if you don't trust Jesus, that is what will happen. Forgiveness of sins, of your sins, is offered. So will you take it? Now that you know the price that's been paid. We have all sinned, Christian and non-Christian, and fall short of God's standard daily. But amazingly, he gives us a way out. A way to get out of our slavery to sin and to be really free. He gives forgiveness of sins through his and not our obedience. I'm going to read the words of the last song we'll sing after communion. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Let's pray and thank God for his mercy and grace. Loving Heavenly Father, we just, um, again, are just touched by your love, by your mercy and grace that you sent your son Jesus to die for the sins that we commit daily, the sins that we 
have and the sins that we will commit, Lord. We thank you for Jesus and we pray, Lord, that we would have a bigger understanding of what it meant for him to go to the cross, to take your complete wrath. That the thought of it in Gethsemane was almost unbearable and yet he still went through with it, Lord. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you that it is not of our own doing and not our own strength that we stand, but purely on Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.